Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to Genesis 9. Genesis 9, looking at verses 18 through 29 this morning. Uh, The curse of Canaan, we are speaking about the curse of Canaan. That will be actually toward the end of our time together. There's quite a bit more that we're going to say today. I I, I feel almost compelled to apologize. Uh, This message will not be quite as focused as perhaps a normal message would be. There's going to be several things of uh, uh, different things that we're going to talk about today. I'm going to hit several topics uh, somewhat briefly and perhaps uh, in one sense maybe not doing justice to any of them in another sense, um, hopefully it will not leave you unsatisfied in, in what I'm going to say. However, I, I felt uh, a desire to, to move on and to not get bogged down anymore in Genesis chapter 9, as we've spent quite some time here uh, uh, in Genesis to this point, and, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm feeling a little bit sensitive to not wanting to get bogged down. So we're going to move through things and hopefully uh, do justice to them while simultaneously um, not spending too much time um, in the weeds. Uh, so today we finish the narrative here in Genesis 9. Noah and his sons have come out of the ark that was the ark of salvation. Noah took the extra of the clean animals that he brought. Remember, he had taken uh, seven. The Lord had brought seven of every clean animal to the ark. So he took the extras and he sacrificed Uh, at least the one extra, um, if not more than one, but at least one extra of every clean animal unto the Lord. The Lord smelled this burning flesh, and it was a sweet-smelling savor to him, not because God particularly enjoys the smell of burning flesh, uh, but because it indicated Noah's worship of God, justifying God's justice and even God's goodness in the midst of the terrible judgment that... He had brought upon mankind. Uh, This is not the primary example of that. In fact, Job is the primary book that contemplates the goodness of God in the midst of man's suffering and justifies the goodness of God even in the midst of suffering. But we do see this here as Noah sacrifices unto the Lord and the Lord is pleased. God thus determines in himself that he would no longer, never again destroy man or the earth with a flood. And in this chapter, we saw that God put his bow the rainbow in the sky to ratify that covenant and to be a reminder to himself of the unconditional covenant never again to destroy mankind or the earth with a flood. And this is where we pick up, beginning in verse 18, the Bible says this, And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham is the father of Canaan. These are the three sons of Noah And of them was the whole earth overspread. So we come to what is effectively a uh, set of summary verses, but in them is something quite significant. Uh, Various things, uh, two things, in fact, that I've pinpointed that are quite significant. First, notice that of the three sons, only one grandson is mentioned. Now in Genesis 10, we're going to find that they all have sons. They all have many sons. And so uh, it is significant for us, if you are reading the narrative of Scripture, and in, in a, a typical literary way, when you see something like this, where we see Shem, Ham, and Japheth mentioned, and then it specifically mentions that Canaan is, is the son of Ham, or that Ham is the father of Canaan, uh, that should perk your ears a little bit. Okay, so we're focusing in on Ham and Canaan, For some reason, what is that reason? And in fact, this is introducing to us in a foreshadowing type of way, um, it is introducing to us the, the, 
the, the focus of these final verses of Genesis 9. It's not going to be the focus in Genesis 10. As a matter of fact, the Canaanites will not become the focus again until the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which will begin in Genesis chapter 12. However, literary, uh, the, as, um, as a literary device, we find here a foreshadowing that God is inspiring into the text, and it allows us to focus in on the things that truly matter. So, we see this idea here, foreshadowing significant events uh, of the next several verses. But we also have a second significant statement here that of these three sons, the whole earth is overspread. In other words, it was through these three sons of Noah that all the people groups of the earth are populated. And that is what we will focus on next week in Genesis chapter 10, the what's often called the table of nations, seeing how it is that the earth was overspread with the nations that came from these three sons, Shem, Ham and Japheth. So we move on then in the text. We'll come back to them next week. But we read an account that is somewhat strange, beginning in verse 20. The text tells us, And Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. And Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years, and the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So many things to account for in this passage, many, many things to talk about. First, let's talk about the practical matter of Noah's drunkenness. The Bible tells us that following the flood, Noah began to be an husbandman and that he planted a vineyard and drank of the wine and was drunken. Naturally, there are some steps missing here uh, because the grape juice doesn't come off of the vine uh, fermented, right? Uh, there is a fermentation process, but we are able perhaps through this to piece together some miss of those missing steps. Now, this drunkenness is going to give occasion for Noah to be lying naked, which will progress our narrative regarding the difference between the way Ham handled this situation and the way Shem and Japheth handled the situation. And that is going to be the actual primary foreshadowing to the life of Canaan and to the nations that will come out of Canaan's children. But let's first think through Noah a little bit. First, we acknowledge that it is at least possible that what is happening here is not some sort of intentional um, drunkenness, but something that is unintentional. Remember that things have changed dramatically in the world since the flood. Now, as in, in the days of Noah now, as opposed to the 600 first years of Noah's life, in these last 350 years, there are, there, there are seasons. There were not seasons before. Men are going to live much shorter lives. We do not see that reflected in Noah as he lives to be 950 years old. But we will see in every subsequent generation the men becoming younger and younger when they die. Many speculations as to why. And the question that enters my mind is, did the nature of the fermentation process of juices change since pre-flood and post-flood? 
Did Noah know that this was the case? Was this intentional or not? Obviously, he would have tasted the fermentation uh, when the fermentation took place. And as I give Noah some measure of possible reasons here as to why he was lying drunken in his tent, I do so only as speculation because the text does not state nor even imply that Noah did not understand fermentation, uh, did not expect fermentation, nor that this was the first time he had ever uh, become drunken. So my point here is not to give Noah a pass. I did not bring up the fact that this may have been incidental or accidental as a means by which to give Noah a pass on his drunkenness or his nakedness, nor do I, but but what, what what I want us to do is also be careful when we not just read the text, but when we live, be careful in your human interactions with assumptions. We don't know the circumstances. We only know the results. And it's a pretty good rule of thumb to live by. I can say that what Noah did was wrong as evidenced by the subsequent condition and consequences of his choices. While also not heaping assumptions upon him as to how the circumstances he found himself in came to pass. Let us always be careful about the assumptions that we make, Christian, and why. Not just in the Bible, but also in our interactions with others. I can call sin what it is. I can call sin, sin, without necessarily making assumptions as to what brought about those circumstances to begin with. And what this does is it allows me to maintain a level of perspective and even compassion as I speak to the nature of sin and its consequences. Broken people come out of bad choices. But broken people can also come out of very bad, broken circumstances, can't they? I can unequivocally say that the drug use that I face every week when I sit across from people counseling them in the jail, the drug use that they are involved in, I can unequivocally say that what they are doing is wrong. And it's evidenced by the consequences within which they find themselves, not just that they're sitting in jail, but the consequences upon their lives, upon their families, upon their careers, upon everything. But God forbid that I would write off the fact that many of them are in that state of drug use to forget shame, guilt, abuse that has been inflicted upon them by people in their lives that they ought to have been able to trust, but instead brought them to this, this place of sorrow, of guilt. I can boldly tell you that you should love one another, that you should be generous, that you should be patient, that you should control your temper. And I do so without reservation because these are things that the Bible says. But God forbid that I would simply heap upon you guilt for your failings without taking into consideration the choices The struggles, the sorrows, the trials that may have led you to make those decisions. Not excusing the decisions you made, nor mitigating the consequences that will be in your life for them, but also understanding that if I'm going to help you, maybe a little compassion is in order. And I say this of you just as I say this of Noah. This is not me giving you an excuse for your sin. If you have the Holy Spirit indwelling in you, you have every resource at your disposal to overcome whatever sin you might be struggling with in your life. But we also acknowledge that there are reasons for many of the things that we do. 
and that the solution to your sin problem may not simply be me getting up here behind this pulpit, opening this Bible and telling you what it says and then telling you stop it. If only it were that easy. But maybe the Holy Spirit has some serious healing that he needs to do in your heart, in your life, before that sin can truly go away. To that end, if you find yourself struggling for victory over some sin, frustration, confusion, depression, anxiety, I encourage you to come and to talk to me. Let me or one of the men in the church help you understand why. What's going on? What's underneath? Why is it that there are these manifestations we are not here to excuse away our sin, but we do recognize that we live in a broken world and that in a broken world, people get broken. And that fixing that brokenness is sometimes a process and that's okay. As long as we submit to the Spirit of God to go through that process, as long as we're willing to humble ourselves, get the help and the accountability we need to go through the process and not try to excuse away our faults, our failings, and our sin because of the circumstances that may have brought them about. And so our church needs to be careful that we don't oversimplify the process of obedience and righteousness because people are complicated. People's circumstances are complicated. They're messy, often tragic. And we need to be careful not to belittle these things. So that's the first thing I encourage you on this morning. Let us be careful. The circumstances by which Noah found himself lying, drunken and naked in his tent, we do not know. That does not excuse away the, 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 the results. But we also need not make vast, oversweeping assumptions about the character of Noah, the nature of his decision-making process, why it was he found himself in that place to begin with. Okay, now let's talk about the actual failures of Noah here. The warnings in Scripture regarding alcohol are many, and they are dramatic. Now, it is important to note that nowhere in the Bible do scriptures explicitly state alcohol to be in and of itself sinful. It is explicitly stated in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 9, that priests were not to drink alcohol when they performed their priestly duties. It was explicitly stated in Numbers chapter 6, verse 3, that the Nazarite, when he would make a temporary vow unto the Lord to consecrate himself unto the Lord for the period of his vow, was not to drink any alcohol. But even in that, alcohol was prohibited explicitly to the priesthood during their time of exercising their priestly duties and explicitly prohibited in the case of the Nazarite during his time of vows is actually an implicit admission that at other times it was not explicitly prohibited. If it was always explicitly prohibited, then you would not need explicit prohibitions to the priests and to the Nazarites. There would have simply been a blanket explicit prohibition of alcohol across the board. And of course, there is much more that can be said as it relates to the differences uh, culturally uh, and uh, otherwise between the alcohol, perhaps, of their day and the alcohol of the time that we live in today, recognizing that the alcohol of history, um, even the alcohol of many cultures yet today, uh, was not... Um, put together or, or intended in any way, shape, or form in order to get people drunk, 
like it is in America today. The explicit purpose of alcohol in the United States today is functionally for people to become inebriated. That was not the case and has not been the case culturally throughout history. So that it is even possible to speculate that the amount of alcohol content that was regularly in, say, the wine that they drank was so little that they, their bodies physically would not actually be able to, at various times and in various contexts, be able to consume enough of the fluid to actually get them drunk on the alcohol content. That being said, this certainly is not always the case. How do we know that? Because we know that there are dramatic warnings in Scripture about alcohol. So that we recognize that drunkenness, going all the way back to the testimony here of Noah, was indeed a real problem and something that the Bible is not um, hesitant to speak on boldly and regularly. So we recognize, first off, that in the Old Testament we see no direct prohibition against alcohol. We also see this in the New Testament. Nothing that even implies alcohol itself is explicitly sinful. Our circles have sought for years to explain away New Testament references to those who we look up to drinking alcohol. Be that Jesus or Paul exhorting Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach's sake. However, in my opinion, none of those arguments hold up to scrutiny. Jesus did make water into wine in John chapter 2. And as we think through that account in John 2, with the rule of the feast saying that typically the good wine is brought at the beginning, and then when people were well drunk and so perhaps less discerning due to their state of intoxication, then the bad stuff would be brought out toward the end of the feast. But the ruler says, after Jesus makes that water into wine, that, that this couple, that the, these, these who were feasting on that day, saved the best for last. That though everyone at that point had been well drunk on the first and the best wine, the ruler says that this was up to the quality of the first and the best. That this was, in fact, the best. And there's no reason to believe that there would be anything in his, there's nothing in his explanation there that would lead us to any other conclusion but that Jesus made wine there, as the text says. But even more convincing of this fact was, is in Matthew chapter 9, verse, excuse me, 11, verse 19. Jesus there is called a wine-bibber, a name which would have made no sense to call Jesus if it did not have some reference point by which to call him. And what I mean by that is this. Let's read together Matthew 11, verses 18 and 19. The Bible says, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he hath a devil. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners, but wisdom is justified of her children. So the, uh, Jesus is speaking here, and he says uh, uh, that... that John, John the, the prophet, John the Baptist, the great prototypical prophet in the spirit and power of Elijah, when he came, he came in that spirit and power of Elijah, in that ascetic spirit by which he withheld from himself the common niceties of the day. This does not mean that he did not eat or drink anything, that John came not 
eating or drinking. He ate and drank. He had to eat and drink. Indeed, if he didn't, he would have died. However, what the idea, the implication of him having not come eating and drinking is that he re- rejected the, the luxuries of the day and he uh, lived a lifestyle of what we call today asceticism, denying himself the pleasures of this life as a means by which to maintain a focus upon the life that is to come. And this is contrasted here. Jesus contrasts the way that they talked about John with the way that they talk about him. So John came refusing the luxuries or, or the niceties of the day, contrasting with Jesus, who came eating and drinking. They charged him thus with being gluttonous and a wine-bibber. Now, think through this with me. The reason why they had the ability, the credibility to call Jesus a glutton is because he exercised the privilege of eating the luxurious foods that were placed before him. That when he went into the house of of the publicans, of the sinners, of the Pharisees, of whoever it might be, and they placed before him foods which uh, were perhaps more rich and, and, and more lavish, he willingly ate those things, and thus they, had, they, they called him a glutton. Now, if he had rejected those things, if he was an ascetic like John, they did not call John a glutton and a wine-bibber, and they could not call John a glutton and a wine-bibber because he explicitly rejected luxurious food and wine. So it would have been silly for them to call him a glutton. They would have had no authority. It would have been a baseless accusation that would have just made the accusers look foolish in the eyes of everyone who heard the accusations. Why? Because he only ate locusts and wild honey. He's obviously not a glutton. You could probably see his ribs. He was obviously not a glutton. So while it was an incorrect charge levied against Jesus that he was a glutton, he was not a glutton, it wasn't an absurd charge because people could look at Jesus eating those luxurious foods and say, oh, they're charging that he eats too much of this, that he is a glutton. And there's at least a baseline to believe it's possible because he's actually eating the food. Now we extend that same idea to drinking, calling him a wine-bibber. Had Jesus only, had he rejected every vestige of alcohol, it would have been a baseless accusation to call him a wine-bibber. It is silly to call someone an alcoholic who has never touched alcohol in their life. It's a baseless accusation that makes absolutely no sense. And anybody that hears it simply rolls their eyes and says, well, that doesn't make any sense because he doesn't touch alcohol. But while it was an incorrect accusation that Jesus was a wine-bibber, an alcoholic, it wasn't an absurd accusation because Jesus, in fact, came eating and drinking, drinking wine. The text makes no sense if it were not so. Now, we know that there were any number of accusations levied against Jesus, and there were many, many false accusations because they were looking for ways to accuse him and to discredit him. But this one only lands in any way, shape, or form because Jesus, as he testifies, came eating or drinking. So, we establish in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that alcohol is not stated as being explicitly sinful. But, of course, that's not the whole story. We also need to talk about why it is that the Christian church has historically, and I believe properly, stood in absolute 
opposition biblically to alcohol. Please don't take my defense of the fact that alcohol is not explicitly sinful in the Bible as any way, shape, or form an affirmation or an encouragement to pursue alcohol. For indeed, I think the exact opposite ought to be the case in our lives. I think it would be well, it would be a wonderful thing if not a person in this church touched the stuff. And the first degree of prohibition in this regard is one that is very clear, absolutely unambiguous, found in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. This is the foundation of our understanding of the warnings against alcohol. Uh, Paul writing in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. We see an explicit command here, the standard that we find unambiguous in the Bible. There is a clear contrast made here, and that contrast sets our standard. The contrast is between a man whose mind and whose heart are able to be filled and directed by the Spirit of God, and the man whose mind and heart are under the influence of something that makes him unable to be sound, sane, sober, and moral, unable to be directed by the Spirit of God. Implicit in this is the expectation that there are certain substances that we can put into our bodies that have the capacity to override our rationality, and by overriding our rationality are thus able to override the capacity of the Spirit of God to guide us. And there should never be... We'll, we'll, and I'm going to give the, I'm going to give the the um, the hard statement, and then we'll 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 walk it back slightly. But there should never be a point in our lives where the Spirit of God is unable to do His work in us. That is not a place that we want ourselves to be in, where the Spirit of God is unable to do His work in us, His convicting work, His guiding work, His leading work, His filling work. And when we put ourselves willingly in a position where we are outside of the capacity of the Spirit of God to do His work, we are in sin. We, are bro- we have broken fellowship. We are in the flesh. Now, as I say that, there's a notable recognition of circumstances wherein we are going to be outside of our capacities uh, naturally. A person goes into surgery, comes out of surgery. The surgeon has used uh, mind-altering Uh, substances as a means by which to mitigate the pain for the purpose of allowing the body to heal. And we would call this a natural, common exception, that our bodies need to heal, and so we are given uh, medications, some of those maybe having a mind-altering effect for a time, as a means by which to allow the body to heal. And we would understand that there are times where such things might be necessary. I'm not talking about that, right? That's not what I'm talking about today. I'm talking about when a person willingly places themselves under the influence of substances that hinder the capacity of the Spirit of God to use and direct them functionally in their life. So this obvious line is drawn. That it is a sin to become intoxicated by a substance. Obviously, alcohol is the substance in view here in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. But as we take a common and a natural interpretive process, we say, well, if alcohol and the capacity of alcohol to override one's natural ability for the Spirit of God to lead because it's a mind-altering substance is in view, it is not a stretch, nor does it do any disservice to the text for us to extend that to any mind-altering substance, regardless of whether it's legal or illegal in our particular society, those things are changing all the time. But it's not about what's legal and illegal. 
It is about what hinders or enables the capacity of the Spirit of God to work in and through me. Now, that's the line. Obviously, directly, it is a sin thus, we would say, we can say it this way, it is a sin to get drunk. It is a sin to become intoxicated. It is a sin to be inebriated. It is a sin to be impaired in my judgment so that the Spirit of God cannot direct and lead me. Everything else that we have in the Scriptures directly as it relates to the nature of, issue, of, of alcohol is issued from wisdom. Wisdom both in the Proverbs and then found in the obvious testimony of life experience. Of practical experiences, I will not speak today. I was talking to a man a while ago, and he was telling me about his concerns. And he had a, 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 a young man who he was interacting with or who was interested in his daughter. And he said he's a good Christian young man and these sorts of things. However, he is willing to drink alcohol. And he said, I'm very troubled by that. What should I do? And, and so I gave him some, some tips. And one of the tips that I gave him had to do with uh, walking him through the scriptures and the warnings and Proverbs, of which we'll consider in just a minute. But then I said, the other thing that you can do is just um, go the practical route. Spend a month going to an AA meeting a week with him. Spend a little bit of time in the jail and realize that 98% of the people there are under the control of some substance. And you'll realize that there's not a whole lot of virtue there. But of those practical life experiences, we're not going to talk directly today. However, let's let the scripture speak for itself. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. And whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Proverbs 23, verses 29 to 35. Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Fighting one, one among another. Who hath babbling? The ability to not even put your words together properly. Who hath wounds without cause. The idea being that I, did, I wasn't fighting someone. I fell over and I hurt myself. I jabbed myself. I stabbed myself because I, I'm, I'm not in my right mind, right? Who hath redness of eyes. They that tarry long at the wine. They that go to seek mixed wine. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red. When it giveth his color in the cup. When it moveth itself aright. At the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Thine eyes shall behold strange women. Talking about the fact that alcohol and, and other um, uh, intoxicating substances have a tendency to lower our inhibitions and thus drive particularly men uh, into um, uh, licentiousness, adultery, fornication. And thy heart shall utter perverse things. When we do not have our rationality and our wits about us, it brings about circumstances where our tongues are loosed to say things, to think things, to allow things, to admit things into our lives that we would otherwise guard ourselves against. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. The idea there being that as a ship in the sea rocks back and forth, so too, when a person is inebriated, they cannot even walk straight. Hence the reason why we have roadside tests, walk the line, breathalyzer, those sorts of things. Easy opportunities for us to discern whether or not a person is intoxicated and so should not rationally be driving a motor vehicle, right? They, that, uh, they have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. When shall I awake? 
I will seek it yet again. Yet for all this misery, yet for all this wickedness, yet for all of this perversion, when the person wakes up from their stupor and they, they have wounds and that they can't account for and they, are, they, they, they don't even remember what happened and they said things that they shouldn't have said and they did things that they shouldn't have did and done and, and, and there, there, there is a regret there, but instead of regret, in order to cover that regret, what do they do? They run directly back to the shame. Proverbs 31, verses 4 through 7, speaking to the king, his mother says, It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert judgment of any of the afflicted. The idea that when a man has responsibilities, when he is a representative of judgment or of justice, which, by the way, not only is every politician and, and, and pastor, but also every father and mother are representatives of truth to their children, are intended to be able to judge between right and wrong before their children, are arbiters of a measure of justice as delegated by God. It is not for those who have responsibilities upon them that could be perverted and thus hurt or ruin other people's lives. It is not for them to put themselves in a situation where they are unable to functionally have the discernment necessary to do what God has asked of them to do. She says, give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish and wine unto those that be of heavy hearts. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. There are those who are despondent of life. And the idea here is not necessarily that that makes it not sinful, but she is simply saying there are those who are impoverished. There are those who are despondent. There are those who need to forget, but you are not among those. You have responsibilities. Isaiah 5, verses 20 to 23. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink, which justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. The association here between those who are mighty to drink wine, who drink, who, who uh, are, are men who are mingle their strength with the strength of, of alcohol, with strong drink. And in doing so, what do we see they, they, they have company with? They have company with those who call evil good and good evil. They have company with those who put darkness and call darkness light and light darkness. They are in the company of those who call the bitter sweet and sweet bitter. They have turned their lives upside down. They are those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. They keep company with those. They keep company with those who justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. They are in bad company. Let us put it that way those who allow themselves to be overcome by such things. So in these passages, we find the same testimony again and again. The company that alcohol keeps is the company of the dishonest, those who are in pain, those who are in despair, those who are of, of, of the company of immorality, of impurity, and of wickedness. And while we all recognize that there are men and women who consume mind-altering substances in moderation and responsibility without ending up in a place where they damage their relationships and make terrible decisions and pervert justice and justify wickedness. We all know that there are those. Most of us also know someone 
who does consume mind-altering substances to this degree. And many of us also know someone who did not intend to allow whatever mind-altering substance they have submitted themselves to to take them to that place of sorrow and of loss and of lies and of wickedness, but found themselves there anyway. For any number of reasons, be it ignorance or simplicity, but in innocence and ignorance don't change the devastating results, the sorrows, the regrets, and the waste when men and women are overcome by mind-altering substances. And that's where we come back to Noah. Regardless of whatever reason it might have been that he consumed all of that fermented wine, regardless of what we might not assume about him and his motives and his intentions, the fact of the matter was he put himself in this condition. And he found himself in a place, a compromised place, not just for himself, but for his children as well. And that brings us to the second element of Noah's failure here. We're working our way to the curse of Canaan. We'll get there. Stay with me. But essential to the context of the curse is the manner in which Ham found his father. The Bible tells us that Ham found Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. And instead of covering his father's shame... He told his brethren of this nakedness. We don't know exactly what that means. There does seem to be some measure of implication here that maybe he thought it was uh, um, 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 funny and wanted his brothers to come and, and see what he had seen as a measure of um, uh, perverse pleasure of sorts, but, but we don't know that directly. However, at the very least, this reflects a lack of respect and dignity unto his father, which, foreshadowing, would carry forward into his posterity. And we see this through the contrast with Shem and Japheth, who were so determined to respect the dignity of their father that they put the, the sheet on their shoulders and they walked backwards to cover their father's nakedness so that they would be able to cover his nakedness while simultaneously not seeing it themselves. And so for the second time in the book of Genesis, we find an emphasis upon the shame of nakedness. With Adam and Eve, we see nakedness as the direct reflection of the shame of sin itself. That the very first thing, the very first evidence of the shame of their sinful condition was that they knew that they were naked and they sought to clothe themselves to cover their shame by covering their nakedness. And here in Genesis 9, we see a similar thing. That to reveal one's nakedness is to shame oneself and to see the nakedness of another is to shame them so that Shem and Japheth would not even look upon their father's nakedness in order to cover him. And it is no coincidence then that as our society slouches farther and farther away from biblical truth and dignity, that we find ourselves in a society where the individuals within it are comfortable, very comfortable, publicly revealing their nakedness. This is not a coincidence. This is not an evolution of society for us to simply get over things. Remember that back in the days of the New Testament, in a city such as Ephesus, that had one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the great temple of Diana, there was probably plenty of public nakedness happening. 
But then as the Western world recognized and submitted to the truths of God's word, things changed. People took on a more modest and decent deportment. Why? Because as one recognizes, draws nigh unto, and assimilates themselves to the truth of God's word, it is unavoidable to see that this is what God wants of us. And we would fully expect in a godless society that society would be comfortable with and even shame those who refuse to show their nakedness. We would fully expect that in a godless society. But the same should not be said among God's people. If the first thing Adam and Eve did following the shame of their sin was to cover their nakedness, if Shem and Japheth did everything in their power to cover their father's shame without laying eyes upon that shame... Let us take from this strong lessons of our own opportunity to set ourselves apart from the rest of the world around us by covering ourselves. Now, as we speak to this, generally we speak to our ladies in particular. That is not because we desire to particularly pick on ladies or anything of the sort. It is because of actually the way men are built. It is because when we look at the way God built men and women, God built men to be naturally visually attracted to women, and God built women to be naturally attracted to men's capabilities. And so the manner in which a man is immodest, drawing undue attention to himself, is different from the manner in which a woman is tempted to be modest, drawing undue attention to herself. A man is naturally tempted to be immodest in action, he, because he is seeking to draw attention to himself through his accomplishments, through his capabilities, through his strength, through his wealth. This is natural. When men compare themselves one to another, we don't really compare each other's looks. We compare each other's bank accounts, each other's jobs. That's what we compare. We compare each other on the the athletic field. How many points can we score? How high can we jump? This is what we do. We play king of the hill. And the reason why we play king of the hill is because the guy at the top of the hill is the best guy. Right? It doesn't matter what he looks like. It matters that he's standing at the top of the hill and everyone else is at the bottom of the hill. That's how men operate. And that's because we know that As God has wired men and women, men are wired to dominate and women are wired to desire that, to desire someone who can care for them, who can take care of them, who can provide for them, who can give them a stable future. That's how God has wired them. Now, God has wired men to be visually attracted and thus wired women to be visually attractive and desire such. This is why we pick on women as it relates to physical modesty, the revelation of nakedness, because it's far more of a problem women to men than men to women. Doesn't mean it's not a problem men to women, especially as our society gets more confused, men become more feminine and such. But that's why. So don't think it's just because of the patriarchy, just because we're picking on you. That, that, that's not the point. The point is these are the natural, God-given, God-built-in proclivities of humanity. So ladies, our society is determined to break down any moral sensibility that you have to the shame of covering yourself. They are determined. Society is lying to you, calling the revelation of your nakedness empowerment when it is absolutely a degrading thing for you. This is why men aren't aren't tripping over themselves to stop these women from their empowerment, in scare quotes for those listening. Because all they're doing as they are seeking to empower themselves is they are giving men exactly what they want. 
Perverse men love it when you leave nothing to the imagination. Men get to walk around all day having their lusts indulged, maybe not fully fulfilled, but satiated nonetheless. But what about men of righteousness? What do they think when you brazenly reveal yourself? When every curve of your body is obvious? Well, what we know from the Word of God is that not only are you truly disrespecting yourself, but you make it extremely difficult for men who are trying to do right to guard their hearts and minds. So that it's not only a shame to you, but it's uncharitable to the men that are around you who want to do right. And I encourage you to think on those things. That as we desire to distinguish ourselves from the world that is around us, one of the ways, ladies, that you can do that today is to cover yourself. Men, I'll pick on you another day. Okay, let's talk now about the curse of Canaan. We come to the curse of Canaan. You've noticed that in the two instances where Ham's name was mentioned in the text, it, he was mentioned as the father of Canaan, almost as if Ham is an afterthought and Canaan is the focus here. This is very intentional, as I've said, indicating that there is a direct reason why this very unflattering account of Noah has been shared with subsequent generations. Always remember that the Bible is an intentional book. I talked about this with a couple of people this week as it related to Elijah and Elisha. Why these accounts? Why have the account of the floating axe head? Why have these things in the scriptures? Why did they bubble up? Why have that there? And, and that's a very, very good and valid question. We don't always get the answer to that question. Why is it that over the course of a thousand years of history, God saw fit to add that singular thing when we know that there's a whole lot more that God left out than that God added, right? And yet it's worthy to ask that question. When something comes up, why did God put it there? Why is it that God is mentioning Ham as the father of Canaan? And the reason why this account, why have this account at all of Noah? It's a very unflattering account. God could have left it out. We'd imagine that there were probably quite a few unflattering accounts of the patriarchs that we simply don't know about. Things that if God had chosen to left them out, we'd have a, maybe a higher respect for and appreciation for these guys. But God put them in there. Why? Well, we would say that it's probably very similar to the reason why the line of Cain was introduced back in Genesis 4. Recall back in Genesis 4, we talked about the brief lineage of Cain following his rebellion and the murdering of his brother Abel. And we said, why is that lineage there? Why even give Cain's lineage for eight generations? And the reason why we concluded, and maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong, um, it's, it's definitely an interpretive choice, on, uh, 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 an interpretive ideas on my part, but the reason why I thought maybe that lineage was in there was specifically to help us understand that when Cain made a choice to do this thing to his brother, to murder his brother, to not humble himself before the Lord, that that choice echoed into his posterity. That what we see is for the next eight generations, all the way to Lamech and Lamech's sons, we find men who chose their portion in this life rather than in the life that was to come. They chose to live for the life now and to, to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And in doing so, we see a choice and consequence by which Cain set a trajectory for his family. And I think we see probably a very similar thing here. Carry that mindset 
into Genesis 9 as you consider this account. And let's go ahead and read those final verses again in verses 20 to 27, and then we'll talk about it. And Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward, and they saw not their father's nakedness. And his younger son had done, uh, uh, excuse me, and... Yep. Uh, And when he knew, I believe is what the text says there. Let me uh, double check here. Uh, And Noah, let me see. Nope. Uh, Verse 24 says, "And, And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son, that's where we pick up again, had done unto him. My apologies for that. And he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and, shall, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. So we've talked about what happened directly with Noah, with his drunkenness, with his nakedness, and why the problem existed to begin with. Noah could have avoided a lot of this uh, by just doing right himself. However, it was an opportunity to reveal something about the heart of his son, Ham. After this fact, Noah wakes up and the Bible says that at some point he knew what his younger son had done unto him, namely that Ham had looked upon his nakedness and to some degree or another thus shamed or disrespected him and his honor and, and uh, t- told his brothers of the shame rather than cover him himself. And what we find here is that this was indicative of something in Ham's heart, that though he had followed his father into the ark in faith, as had Shem and Japheth, though he had come to the other side of the great judgment of God upon mankind, yet his heart was not perfect with his father and before the Lord. Instead, there was some profanity within him. There was something that would perhaps mock or belittle or at least degrade his father in his eyes that would allow him to be comfortable with this shame And this dishonor that he had heaped upon his father. And in doing so, disrespected the authority that God had placed into his life. And when Noah learned of this, it compelled him to curse his son Ham and to bless Shem and Japheth. Because Shem and Japheth reflected a heart that was right before the Lord in the manner in which they deported themselves toward their father's nakedness. Unlike Ham. Thus we see a contrast between Ham with some measure of profanity or perversion in his heart, and Shem and Japheth, without such. So, of course, when Noah had learned of this, it compelled him to levy a curse. A curse upon Ham, but, but of course, the most interesting thing is he doesn't actually directly curse Ham, does he? Instead, he curses Ham's son, Canaan. A son whom, as far as we know... The text does not say he was even present for the event. And maybe that's what we could assume. Maybe we could assume that it was actually Canaan that did this wrong thing. And that he told his father Ham, and that Ham, rather than covering his father's nakedness. But that's not what the text says. The text says Ham saw his father's nakedness, and he went and told his brothers. So we can make that assumption. Some have made that assumption. But that assumption is not really what the text says in clarity. So then what do we do with this? What do we do when Noah curses Canaan? his grandson, when what we see from the text 
is that it seems as though it was his son that did the infraction. And this presents to us a sort of moral conundrum where we must ask the question, is God okay with this? With cursing the child for the explicit sin of his father. So very briefly, I want to remind us, again, I told you this was going to be an eclectic message and there was going to be a lot of different things in it. So let's remember very briefly some of the principles that undergird. When we come to questions like this in the Bible, what do we do with this? What do we do with Canaan and the curse of Canaan here when Ham was the one that committed the infraction? Well, we allow what is clear in the Bible to interpret what is not clear. And this guards us from taking something very ambiguous or fleeting in the Bible, such as this curse of Canaan, and allowing it to undermine the rest of what the Bible says, undermine the character of God, if there is no other conclusion that we can come to as it relates to what happened here, other than that, yes, God curses children for their, for their, their parents' sins, then, uh, then we have to come to that conclusion. And then we add that to what we understand of the character of God. But that is not the case here. That is not what we find. We find much clearer expressions of God's character in the Bible that allow us then to interpret this passage through the clarity of those foundational texts. And in this case, the question is, is Canaan being cursed directly for his father's sin? And the first principle that the Bible presents in Genesis chapter 18 is that God does not destroy the righteous with the wicked. I'm not going to turn to these passages, but in Genesis chapter 18, we find that God removes Lot from Sodom before Sodom is destroyed. In that, we see Abraham exam, uh, examine and exemplify or, or, or uh, elevate, excuse me, a principle that God does not destroy the righteous with the wicked. And he appeals to this principle to appeal to God for the life of his nephew Lot. And God does acquiesce to his request. He does not spare Sodom, but he pulls Lot out of Sodom before it said destruction, because God does not destroy the righteous with the wicked. Righteous men often suffer under the physical decisions that wicked men make. Wicked men make terrible decisions, and the next thing you know, we're paying $5 a dozen for eggs, right? So righteous men might suffer under the decisions of wicked men. Very benign example. Not trying to belittle what's happening in Syria to the Christians or the Philippines or anything else. Please don't take it that way. But righteous men are never included in God's divine judgments against wickedness. And we know that beginning in Genesis 18, and we see it throughout the Word of God. We also know from Ezekiel 18 that the soul that sinneth, it shall die. That God says there will be no cause for there to be the proverb that the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. That the fathers have done wrong and the children will be judged directly for it. God does not destroy one man's for another man's sin. With the notable exception of one man, that being the man Jesus Christ, who took upon himself all of our sin and was judged for us. And then finally, we see in Exodus chapter 24 that there is precedent for the idea that God visits the iniquities of the fathers upon the children from generation to generation. God declaring it to be so in Exodus 24. The idea here as we've already seen in the legacy of Cain, perhaps, that his choices, Cain's choices, were Cain's choices. Cain received the natural consequences of his choices, but his choices, both his sin and his refusal to repent, did chart the course of his family for multiple generations. 
setting a precedent that, though subsequent generations perhaps could have repented and turned to the Lord, we find they did, in fact, not break away from such sin. And I know I covered those principles quickly, and I didn't actually take you to those passages so you could see them for yourselves, although I mentioned them, so you can certainly go look them up. For the sake of time, I lay them before you, however, and then we come to some manner of conclusion. With these principles in place, we ask whether or not the events in the life of Ham and Canaan, this curse of Canaan, can they comfortably fit into the clarity of these other doctrines of Scripture? Can they comfortably fit? Is Canaan here an exception to the rule that makes us have to rethink the foundations of our doctrinal understanding of how God deals with sin? Is this the soul that sinneth, his son shall die? Is this the father ate the sour grapes and Canaan's teeth are set on edge? Is this the idea that Canaan is going to be the one to suffer for his father's sin? Or is there something else here? Can we explain it in some other way that does not threaten the foundational understanding that the entire word of God gives about the character of God? And I think we're certainly able to do so. As we look at what will happen in the narrative as it continues through Genesis and into Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, what we find is the Canaanites become a particular problem. They become a particular group of people that must eventually be judged by God through Israel, by God telling Israel to go into the land of Canaan and to destroy every man, woman, and child. And what we're going to find all throughout, not just this narrative here of, of, of Ham and Canaan, but as we continue into the narrative of Abraham, is we're going to find that there is mercy to be had for the Lord. In the days of Abraham, we're going to find that God is showing mercy to those that are in the land of Canaan. Mercy to the children of Canaan in their days. That the, that the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full in those days, but that there was coming a day where this particular family of people the family of those that came from the line of Canaan chose a uniquely wicked path. And that uniquely wicked path would end with God uniquely judging them by destroying their civilization. And he used the vessels that were the nation of Israel to do it. And so God has seen fit to begin to frame that narrative as to why it was that the Canaanites were eventually going to need to be judged by him unto destruction. And this is the beginning of that theme. So that what we find here is we find that this man, Ham, had a perversion in his heart that would continue, not in all of his children, but that would be uniquely picked up by his son, Canaan. And that this perversion that was in his heart that is revealed on the day that he mocked his father's nakedness and sought to bring his brothers into said mocking, said perversion, that that unique perversion in his heart would carry forward through Canaan. And what Noah is doing here, we might presume, is that he fell into a prophetic state whereby he acknowledged Ham's sin and the effect that it would have on Canaan and Canaan's posterity. So that by the time we get to the days of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob, we understand that this Canaanitish people are a people that are prophetically cursed. 
that, that, that Noah prophetically recognized to be a people who would persist in perversion to the point where God's mercy must give way to his justice and his judgment. And the foundation of that is being laid right here. Revealed in the profane actions of Ham toward his father. So that in this account, we're not quite there yet. In this account, we do not find a God of injustice who is punishing a son for the actions of his father. But instead, we find a prophetic recognition of the spiritual legacy which will bear fruit in the life of Ham and then into the choices of his son Canaan unto the end that, the enti- that entire nations would walk into those same profane choices and consequences. Namely, that they would become this people, not an inferior people in human dignity, but in culture and society. They would become servants to their brethren. They would become an a, a, a inferior people in that sense. They would never rise to the consistency of strength that would define the nations from the line of Shem and of Japheth. And as we'll see in Genesis 10, this will in fact be the case, and we'll see it again in Genesis 12, and we'll see it again as we continue through Genesis and into the days of the Exodus and the days of the Judges. Now, this message has been full of applications, but I want to add one more. On this point, there's a principle found throughout the Word of God that we often boil down to the phrase, the sowing and reaping principle. You reap what you sow. What you plant is what grows. I don't plant watermelons and get oranges. You've never seen it. I've never seen it. It'll never happen. Because what you plant is what grows. The principle most clearly expressed by Paul in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And what we find in Genesis chapter 9 is the third expression of this principle since we began the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve chose to eat of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree, uh, excuse me, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God told them that the day that they would eat, that if they sowed into that action, that they would reap death, spiritual separation from God. And the day that Adam ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he reaped the death that God promised he would reap. His decision, however, not just affecting him, huh? But his decision being so effective that it still touches us today. That each one of us are born into that same sin. That not only did Adam reap what he sowed, but his posterity reaped what he sowed. Cain chose to engage in false worship. And then rather than repent when he was confronted by God, he killed his brother because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Rather than repent of his own sin, he sought to remove the testimony of his sin by killing the righteous one. And he was cursed. He sowed into his heart rebellion, murder, anger, and he reaped physical violence and murder. But his decision did not just affect him, did it? So that we can trace the eight generations of Cain, all of which his children still having their portion in this life. Eight generations into his line, Lamech saying the same thing. 
He was ready to kill. And now we see it again in Ham, who himself showed contempt for the authority and the design of God to cover the shame of our nakedness, and who would reap what he sowed, not only in his life, but in the life of his son Canaan, whose choices would go on to define the spiritual condition of entire nations of people. And to this end, Christian, we should not deceive ourselves. God is not mocked. There is a design in the heavens that what you plant is what is going to grow. What you sow is what you will reap. You can't fill your heart and your mind with sin, with the garbage of this world, with the love for the things of this world, and expect righteousness to flow out of you. It cannot work. It does not work. It's impossible. And you can't get around the principle, Christian. You can say the right words. You can clean yourself up on a Sunday. You can present yourself as something that you aren't. Then you can go home and you can fill your mind and your heart with the things of this world because if you plant profanity, lust, selfishness, greed, like into your life, no matter how convinced you are that you can handle it, what you plant is what will grow. That is what will come out of you. It may not come out of you on Sunday. It may not come out of you in the ways that will, will, will publicly shame you. But you know what? At the end of the day, That doesn't matter because there's one person who you have to stand before when your life is over. And that's not me, and that's not the members of this church, that's not your husband, and and it's not your, your wife, and it's not your children, and it's not your parents. It's the Lord. And and he he will not be mocked. He cannot be fooled. What you plant is what's going to grow, Christian. And if this reality in your own life is not enough to cause us to strive unto integrity, unto the kind of life where we actually are who we say we are, we are what we say we are, we are who we present ourselves to be, if it is not enough for you to understand the sowing and reaping principle for your own life because you say, well, it's just me, no big deal, what does it matter, so I'll face some consequences, let the testimony of Adam and of Cain and of Ham remind you that what you plant will grow and it may not just grow in you. What you plant may very well grow into the lives of those whom you influence. Okay, so we've talked about a lot of things today. We've talked about the nature of compassion and not assuming while still acknowledging sin to be sin. We've talked about alcohol. We've talked about nakedness. We've talked about the sowing and reaping principle. We've covered an awful lot of ground. And I don't know which, if any of these, the Lord might... Take his thumb and put it on your life and say, there needs to be some work here. But I encourage you, if the Spirit of God has taken something and impressed it upon your heart, don't ignore that. Don't let that go. The point here is not to make that. I'm not here making demands upon your actions in any of the things that I've said. I'm here making exhortations regarding your heart. Where is your heart this morning, Christian? Are you following the Lord? Are you sensitive to His design? Are you sowing the things that will reap life everlasting? Are you sowing the things that will reap spirituality or are you sowing carnality? Are you busy looking for ways to get what you want as a Christian or are you looking for ways to do what God wants of you? May we be followers of the Savior today. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. 
More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.